This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at b h e r t e l at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World podcast. Welcome to the Coin World podcast. With your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello again and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. We're so glad you could join us on this journey here today. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark, and uh, we are excited today to delve into the world of Condor tokens. We spoke to the Druid himself, Brian Harriet of Druid's Cash. I'll tell you one thing. It was exciting to learn all about this because having met Brian at the fun show, having a chance to see the items that he had actually right there, and then getting the ta- a chance to talk to him a little bit uh, that we had this opportunity. There's a whole lot more that we could have talked about, but of course, uh, we were able to get 30 minutes of Brian's time, and uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing him coming up here very soon once again as we go to the World's Fair of Money in Rosemont, Illinois, which is going to be happening August 10th through the 14th, and it is going to be an exciting time because we've we've been trying to build up the idea that we're getting back to these major coin shows, and until you walk through the Donald Stevens Convention Center in the month of August, it's going to be reality check right there. This is it. We're back. Keep your fingers crossed that things uh, are going to be very positive here. Speaking of positive, if you're looking to make a positive addition to your hobby collection, you've got to take a look at the array of products that are available from Amos Advantage. That's our sponsor for our podcast here. They've been very faithful to us indeed, as have many of our listeners. We thank all of our listeners for uh, your continued support of this podcast. Uh, just send us your suggestions. we got a couple of more letters. Good to hear from Alyssa once again. And uh, also, we uh, had a few more suggestions, so we're going to be taking those into mind here. But uh, right now, we're going to focus on the business at hand because we've got a very busy week to, uh, taking shape here, wrapping up an issue. And yeah, it looks like the uh, United States Mint is up to it again. I know you had a little bit of a personal experience trying to acquire one of the latest offerings from the Mint. How'd it go for you? So people that are paying attention know that the uh, Mint website has been problematic for many people for many years. And the latest offering of the Proof Type 2 2021 Silver American Eagle was no different, although I shouldn't say no different. It was many folks were able to get in and able to order, but uh, the coin did sell out in like 20 minutes. It was late in the game. I was doing something else and I went, oh, crud or something like that and hopped on you know maybe 15 minutes after sales had begun and by the time i got things scrolling again 
uh, I was able to add it to my cart, was not able to check out. It then went on to um, unavailable status. And so I missed the chance to add that to my collection as well. I guess it's okay because I'm the world coin guy. So what am I doing with one of them U.S. coins? But uh, it was nice that at least it lasted a little longer. We saw a good number of folks saying that they were able to obtain them. And, um, you know, as with many other previous issues, hot demand, uh, demand is blazing at the outset. People are getting these and sending them up the chain to uh, big dealers, marketers, and that sort of thing. You know, there's always an outcry and people complain about all the marketers are taking advantage and doing this and that. Well, there are a lot of folks out there, a lot of dealers, companies who take the risk that if the market moves by the time these actually are delivered, then um, they stand to lose some money. But, you know, I don't see that happening uh, for a while. A lot of folks who got their limit three and they're turning around and making a quick buck and, and sending them down the chain. It's bad for the end buyer, if you will, somebody who wasn't able to get in there and uh, react quickly enough. Those folks who weren't able to be poised at a computer uh, come noon Eastern time when sales began. Uh, on the flip side, all those folks who were turning around and selling those coins for a profit, they now have money that they can use to go buy uh, a coin they'd rather have. So that does stimulate a different segment of the market in one respect. But uh, I know as long as these sorts of releases uh, happen and happen this way, people are going to be left out. And uh, I certainly was this time. Well, again, and the thing about it is, too, I, I wondered about this, that why noon? Because noon Eastern time is 11 o'clock in your world. Then for somebody in Denver or the mountain time zone, that's 10 o'clock in the morning. And then further uh, out west, you've got your fact that you're dealing with this at nine o'clock in the morning. And there's going to be a lot of folks that are either at work or in a commute at that time. And so therefore, they, there's a lot of people who would like to get these that it's just simply not a right time to do that. But what is the right time? Is 8 o'clock Eastern the right time? No, it's 5 o'clock on Pacific time, and that's not necessarily the right time. What are they going to do? How are they going to do it? So this time thing is going to be something that can't totally be solved. But uh, it could be, as you mentioned, you know, if you don't have access to a computer at that time, then you pretty much are out of the mix. And there's a lot of folks that uh, weren't successful with a mintage of only 300,000 of these, then uh, there were some people that were left out. And of course, they're the first ones that we hear from. Justifiably so. They didn't get their opportunity to get what they were looking for. And uh, the system could be better. There have been some proposals offered in some of the letters in the past issues of Coin World, And we'll be continuing to see comments that are made that might have suggestions that might possibly be more amenable than what the current situation is right now. But it is, as they say, you play it as it lies. And that's kind of the way it is right now. Just going to be interesting when the S comes out uh, a little bit later on to see what happens with that, because that's got uh, only 67% of the mintage uh, figure that this one had. So it's just going to be interesting to see. This one is, you know, the displeasure with the website is not going to go away. For a while, there is a solution needed, and some people believe they're not moving fast enough, and some people are just going to 
be able to get their coin and be happy. Hopefully some of the combating against the bots is going to be working because uh, you don't want anybody to have the competitive advantage, so to speak. So it's a, it's a tough little game. Uh, you, I don't play it, and it's uh, it's one of those games I don't mind sitting on the sideline watching. Speaking of sitting on the sideline and watching, we are poised to watch how some uh, legislation might play out. Another big thing in the news right now uh, in the latest issue of Coin World, actually, from our colleague Paul Jilks, uh, legislation in the House of Representatives you know, everybody knows about the 1976 bicentennial coin program, but, you know, we're coming up upon the 250th anniversary, the semi-quincentennial. Say that three times fast. That, that, that. <laughs> yeah. I just, okay. I just did it. Okay. Say semi-quincentennial three times fast. So. Not a chance. Anyway, you know, that happens in 2026. And so a bill has been introduced in both actually the House and the Senate companion bill coming from a senator. This is interesting. We're looking at $2.50 five-ounce silver coins. That would obviously be non-circulating. We're looking at gold $25 coins. Okay. Copper nickel clad quarter dollars. Okay. That's, you know, that's like the bicentennial almost 50 years ago. And then silver $2.50 coins, the silver quarter eagle, which, you know, the quarter eagle denomination, $2.50 heretofore has been a gold denomination. So uh, this is an interesting proposition and uh, naturally, all coins proposed in the legislation could be offered in proof and uncirculated versions. It's just been introduced. We have a while to go before you know the anniversary happens. And obviously, the Mint will need time to have the design process and all this and that once, once and if, I, if I should say, if and once the legislation goes through the legislative process, we could very well see this proposal die in this Congress uh, to be revived in another Congress. We could see, you know, it passed. We could see it languish and sometimes late in a congressional cycle. Some There'll be some action on bills such as these. So we just don't know. It's too early to say at this point, but it is interesting to think about how the landscape would look uh, for circulating and non-circulating commemorative coinage for the semi-quincentennial. Now, my thing is, what compelled them to want to change the 250 from gold to silver? Where in the world, I mean, I don't necessarily claim to be as connected as some, but I would like to wonder where that came from. For to me, that's out of left field. And I just would love to know, I'd love to talk to the sponsor and say, where did this come from? Well, I mean, the reality is it's going to be a lot more affordable to a lot more people as a True. silver coin than a gold coin. So True. for all the hand-wringing from collectors uh, complaining about, and I think rightfully so in, in many respects, not always, but rightfully so that, you know, the hobby's gotten too expensive, whatever, the mint's just cash cow for all these, you know, the, the rich collectors, blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know, if you have a $2.50 silver coin that's, you know, the legislation calls to be one and a half inches diameter and not less than 90% silver, it could be three nines fine, it could be, you know, sterling, but, you know, could be the 90 90% silver, like junk silver, like constitutional silver, whatever, you know, previous silver U.S. coinage uh, for circulation, you know, that's going to be 
$75, maybe compared to four times that, five times that mm-hmm. probably, if, if not more. I mean, you know, so it's maybe not my first choice. I would rather see just silver dollars and, you know, silver dollar has a nice size, nice landscape for, you know, having a design canvas, if you will. It is odd. It is different unusual, but uh, maybe we need something a little different and unusual to smack a little, uh, <laughs> smack a little life into uh, some areas uh, of the hobby just to, to get people excited again by U.S. commemorative coinage. Who knows? You know, what do you yeah. think? What do you, everyone well, out there listening, what do yeah. you think? Yeah. Let us know what you think about that because I mean, sometimes change does Good, because when they changed back in the state quarter in the uh, National Park Quarter program, it, it instituted a lot of interest. And uh, silver dollars are still uh, quite interesting to a lot of folks. And with the Morgan and the Peace coming back in uh, 2021, it's regenerated more interest in the denomination, the older denomination. Maybe a silver 250 would open up an interest in the gold quarter eagle. Hard to say what's going to happen and hard to say what is actually going to happen right now because it's all supposition. But it'd be interesting to hear what anybody would have to say about these plans and maybe make some suggestions that, uh, I don't know, I don't know that we can take them to Capitol Hill, but just the idea of having these suggestions. It's good to know because it's our hobby too. We would like to kind of, you know, we're, we're talking about having some fun. And uh, as Cheryl Crow once said... A change will do you good. Oh yeah, my muse. <laughs> I um, I, I yeah, I, I sort of wish. I mean, um, she's a little older than myself, but interestingly, she taught music in the same school district that I went to. Uh, would that I had been her student, but uh, I, alas, I was not that fortunate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And just we all get to enjoy her talents and that's uh what's what's very important here so you know now we have the situation with the coins of today that are not available and the but the potential coins of tomorrow that we don't really know what's going to be happening let's uh, go to something a little more within reach here and talk about coins that are available today and uh understand you got the line on one of them that could be quite interesting regular listeners will know that i write about world coins and uh, this week got to write about a uh, new circulating commemorative $2 coin uh, up in Canada and uh, $2 Canadians about a dollar 80 US I'm sorry dollar 60 US there's a plain version and a colorful version well, what does this coin commemorate it actually commemorates the centennial of the discovery of insulin and um, the colorful version has a like a almost a Smurf blue color, I, I would say, um, or a um, neon blue-ish color of the insulin itself, the um, scientific whatever. I can't think of the name of it, but, you know, the... Um, monomer, monomer. Monomer, that's it, monomer. Yeah. And uh, you read the story. I only wrote it, so <laughs> why, why would I remember? And... Um, there's several million of each version. I think two two million plain and four million colorized. I think that's right. You can check out coinworld.com for the story. But, you know, I love what Canada has done over the last 20 years when it comes to circulating coins. You can get into a debate discussion about the uh, non-circulating, all the collector products. But from a circulation standpoint, they have just 
used coinage to celebrate so many aspects of Canadian culture that, you know, I think for the most part, uh, everybody agrees with and thinks are worthy of honor, whether that was the Olympics that came there in, uh, what, 2010, Vancouver now, 11 years ago. He, I remember writing those stories in 2007, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, there's a bunch of colorful and plain quarters uh, and a couple dollars for the Olympics. There's national parks with um, color on them and, uh, you know, like a bison and a whale and different things. Um, there's just so many aspects that have been uh, commemorated the the Canadian flag, the pink breast cancer quarter, a couple of those, the red poppy for Veterans Day, you know, um, Remembrance Day, as it's called in uh, the English language uh, nations of the crown, like the UK and Canada and Australia and all that. Uh, so there's just so many aspects that have been celebrated. And it's, you know, it's readily available in change. The Mint even sells, uh, they've often sold collector versions or, or like um, circulating packs at face value. Sometimes it was free shipping. Sometimes they've charged you shipping. But, you know, the idea is to get these out there. They did a great one a couple of years ago, $2 coin for D-Day's anniversary, one plain, one colorful. It's just a neat way to get people excited about looking at their change. And I think it's no different than what the U.S. Mint has done to much less success with the Z, the V75 Privy Mark, the W Mint Mark, that kind of stuff, as well as the America the Beautiful coins. It's just fun. It's cheap fun. And I know that somebody who wanted to dip their toes into that sort of pool could, for not a lot of money, get a lot of neat designs. And, you know, we don't have color on our circulating coins, but a country one-tenth the size of us does. So it's just neat. You know, they've they've used the color on coins for Panama and for other countries that they've struck circulating coins for. And, uh, you know, the Royal Australian Mint has done that to some degree. Uh, we spoke to uh, Roger McNeese several months ago about that. But anyway, yeah, that that's the big news from Canada right now. And, uh, you know, it's certainly important uh, for somebody who is experiences uh, the effects of insulin or not enough insulin. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, again, um, another nod to sort of world history and Canadian history and uh, readily available, cheap fun. Yes, indeed. And I mean, it's uh, we've seen a number of coins directed to the pandemic and the healthcare workers and benefit that's been from some of the uh, other countries around the world. And now this one coming out here. Hard to believe that it's been a hundred years for the development of insulin. But so now we're taking a look at what's in the present. We've already had a look at what's in the future. It's time for us to dip back into the past because in this great hobby of numismatics, we've had a lot of experiences that have helped shape where we are today so that we can talk about coins honoring insulin development or the fact that the U.S. Mint is having problems. So let's spin back into the time of, uh, we're, this is not back to the future, this is back to the past. What do you got to show for what happened around this time of year in a year previous? So we are we are jumping back in the time machine to July 27th 1957 and this is your atypical this week in numismatic history but I think it has importance 
for both the hobby since that time and in and present day, and there there are some parallels. So what happened? Well, I, you know, that's a big setup. What happened on July twenty seventh, uh, nineteen fifty seven? Well, that was when two young dealers, almost kids, uh, by the name of James Ruddy and Q. David Bowers, trading as Penn. New York Coin Company conducted an auction. So, you know, Ruddy, you may recall less, maybe less, lesser known than Q. David Bowers, but certainly, you know, Q. David Bowers. Well, James F. Ruddy was the uh, author of Photograde, which was a milestone book. And he was co-founder with Bowers of Bower and Ruddy Galleries uh, after they had worked together for more than a decade in various coin businesses. So, you know, Ruddy unfortunately died in 2017. Mr. Bowers is still with us. In fact, uh, we expect to see him on the floor at the ANA uh, just, uh, you know, in mere days or weeks. The parallel is, you know, when you and I were at FUN a couple weeks ago, I don't know if you saw it, but I sure saw it. There were a lot of folks out there who were young, a lot of younger folks that are dealing, that are, you know, they're active, say, on Instagram, uh, maybe less so Facebook. Uh, you know, I, I, truth be told, I don't do much with my Instagram and I, I don't, I haven't done anything with TikTok, but folks who complain and, and Brian Harriet in our interview references this folks who complain about, oh, the, the kids are, aren't being part of the hobby and all that. They're really not paying attention. They're really not, you know, tuned in. And there are a lot of folks out there today that are active and engaged and quite profitable, I might add. And uh, certainly it just recalls, we look back, wax nostalgic about this different time and it was so much easier, this, that, and the other, whatever. But, you know, there are pioneers today blazing trails. If you know of somebody like that, let us know. Uh, if you are one yourself, if you've bought from them, you know, we're always curious. We want to learn and, and expand our knowledge of the the industry and the hobby and see who is out there. And I, I am going to make a concerted effort, not a conceited effort, uh, maybe a conceited effort, but certainly a concerted effort to be more active on my Instagram. I want to see who's out there. Let us know. And, uh, you know, that that will continue that great tradition that has been going on decades, certainly long before July 27th, 1957, when Bowers and Ruddy had their auction. Uh, but certainly we, we want to zero in on that date because it uh, is, uh, you know, happening this week as we look back. Well, yeah, and that uh, July 27th date happens to fall right in the middle of the Coin University that's taking place uh, out in San Francisco. We had Seth Chandler on not long ago talking about that and the young numismatists that got their scholarships and had a cha- are having a chance currently to uh, learn more right from a coin dealer and to uh, interact with some of the other folks that uh, maybe just screen names in uh, some of these social media, but now they're going to be transported into uh, real persons and they're going to be uh, networking and they're going to be uh, strengthening their skills and sharpening their swords as they go through that. So it's just perfect that we uh, have something related to the younger folks getting involved. And uh, I'm like you, I did see a fair amount of folks and they're well, well tuned in to what's going on. Trust me. Don't think because they're on a social media platform that they're not interested because it's not an ego thing. It's the real deal. 
Oh, and the knowledge and the profit. I mean, the, you know, these there's younger folks who are, if I were a dealer and, and somebody came up to my table, it would be to my detriment to make an assumption that somebody who looks like they're still in high school couldn't afford a $2,000 coin because they're out there. Oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt they're out there. So sp- speaking of um, expensive coins and, and Bowers and all that, we're looking back at this week in coin world history. So we went to the July 28, 1997 issue. That just happens to be uh, 200 years after the time that Brian Harriet talked about, the 1790s. In that issue, uh, it wasn't so much the cover, but inside the cover, an ad from Bowers and Morena, which Bowers and Ruddy turned into Bowers and Morena, and now it stacks Bowers. They had an ad uh, at the time, the top 10 U.S. coins sold at public auction. How many do you think Bowers and Morena had sold? Mm, hard to say. Okay. And this is not the trivia question for the week, but it's seven, seven of the top 10, uh, the top being 1804 Drape Bust Dollar, the second being 1913 Liberty Nickel, the five cent, and you know goes all the way down to the 1861 Paquet $20 gold, the uh, 1822 Half Eagle, which I think that sold recently, 1787 Brasher Doubloon. I mean, it's just, it's it's really fun to see some of these old ads, and it, it had particular resonance. Seven of the top 10 were Bowers and Morena. One of them was Stax. So, you know, together, the modern firm at, you know, looking back, had eight of the top 10 at this time, July 28th, 1997. So what was in that issue from letters that jumped out for you? Boy, there were a couple of letters that were in that issue and uh, fairly lengthy letters, but it talked pretty much about a uh, following up to a letter that had appeared just a few weeks uh, before that was called Declining Reasons. And it uh, centered on the talk of what's happening in the hobby. How many people are not being involved with it? One letter inferred that people just aren't interested in coins. But this letter here uh, says facts of life and offers kudos to that uh, letter writer. He says, this letter writer says, I originally started collecting coins back in 1961 when collecting was much more basic and everyone could understand the term it is what it is. I got out of collecting in 1969 when I went to Vietnam did not start back up again until about three years ago, so that would make it 1997, or 94, rather. I was amazed at how totally out of control the hobby appears to be. Besides all the different grading classifications, which people can't seem to agree on, except when it comes back to the lower grades up to extremely fine, there are now different definitions of what makes a coin uncirculated or not. Some say a rub is about uncirculated. Others say a rub can still be uncirculated. Some say full mint luster is required to be uncirculated. Others say it's not required. The powers in the coin field seem to have found another way to squeeze more money out of the average Joe by declaring higher values on every doubled, tripled, SD, DS, DD, 7-8, bring this, snow that, bam this, and so on and so forth. There is so much that these variations, most that can't even be seen without the likes of the Hubble telescope, (laughs) seem to be the norm rather than the exception. At most coin shows that I've attended in my home state, dealers spend their time away from their tables talking with other dealers. If you happen to find one at his table, unless you have your wad of money out and want to buy some Mint State 67 doubled something, VAM variety, key date item, etc., They act like you're imposing upon them. 
when you want to look at a few of their under thousands of dollars items. I currently spend between $100 and $500 per week on coins or paper money. Now I realize that is chump change when one picks up any numismatic circular and sees one ad after another with coins that cost thousands of dollars. I've quit attending shows. I give most of my business to a handful of individuals that I trust and who are genuinely interested in providing good, honest service and an accurately graded piece. And before I get all of this psycho babble about joining this organization or that group to make a difference, just remember that people with the money have the power, and unless you can play with the big boys, you're not going to change things. That's just a fact of life, and no amount of desirous good intentions are going to change that. And that was from Kurt Giacoboni from Lakeland, Michigan. On that wow. positive note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like, wow, okay. I see what you're getting at here. I, I see some of this, but I don't know about you know not being able to make a difference. And I don't know about how I, I, I consider him condescending to the idea of the varieties and the errors that we find and things like that. And, and I kind of take issue with that because that's, that's what makes it interesting. That's what gets some people involved in this. I see a lot of posts on some of the Facebook about people in search of the error coins. Like when we talked to Joe Cronin earlier, I mean, the error coins sometimes can be interesting when you see one that you don't know if it's a mint error, if it's a you know, post-mint damage, what is it? You know, that just helps in the educational side of things. I think you need to learn more rather than react. And some of the learning aspects are, are falling short here. Uh, but it was an interesting letter, and it wasn't the only one that gave the inference that the hobby was uh, in need of some correction. That's just what made it interesting. Agree or disagree, it's still interesting. And sure. the fact is, there's an opinion there. That's what leads to conversation. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's funny, the letter writer mentioned 1961 because that was the date of our uh, the event that's at the key uh, or the center of our trivia question from last week. And uh, last week, because of your interview with Richard Jurek, we talked about some dimes that had been recovered from Gus Grissom's Liberty Bell 7 Mercury spacecraft. Now, this uh, was taken on a July 21, 1961 flight to the edge of space. You know, we've been learning a lot about the edge of space lately, uh, the last few weeks with uh, billionaires going up there. Grissom's suborbital flight uh, returned to Earth and sank 16,000 feet to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and he nearly drowned. But he had some dimes with him that were left in the space capsule. And I wanted to know how many dimes, i.e. what face value of the dimes were eventually recovered. It turns out they were recovered uh, July 20th, 1999. Once you answer that, we're going to, uh, Mr. Jurek provided a little more perspective on the recovered items. And then I'll ask you the question for uh, next week. Yes. And then while you're asking me this question, and uh, I'm thinking, I wonder if our most recent excursion to the uh, edge of space, I wonder if they took any coins with them. I so was thinking I, the same thing. Mm-hmm, yeah, like mines. That's what it's got here. Paul Jilks, the aforementioned Paul Jilks, wrote a story about an auction of some of the items that uh, were space-related back in 2016 is when he wrote the article. And I believe the dimes were included in that. And if memory serves, when I was doing research previous, I believe the number 
that comes to my mind, and I'm hoping I remember it right, and I'm hoping I'm right, but um, I think it, like, it was a little over 50, like 52. You are correct. So okay. that So that, what does that translate to, the math? $5.20. Bingo. You're correct. The story is out there at coinworld.com. Mr. Jurek wrote to us, Jeff, you're right about the dimes. I have one of the recovered mercury dimes in my collection. It was acquired from Kurt Newport, who headed the private exploration and recovery of Grissom's capsule. Now, Jurek cautions, there are two types of flown mercury dimes to collect from Gus's flight. Dimes from the family that were in Gus's spacesuit pockets and thus did not, quote, go down with the ship, quote, when his capsule sank, and the dimes that went to outer space and then to the deepest parts of inner space and the ocean and stayed there for almost 50 years, the 52 pieces to which we're referring now. Uh, These are great items to hunt and get, he says, and appear occasionally at auction. The former type is best to get with direct Grissom family provenance, the latter with direct Kurt Newport provenance. So we appreciated that insight to uh, the part of the question. And uh, it begs the question now for next week, I've just been randomly finding questions lately, but I wanted to go back to the coin world trivia. You know, we talked to Brian of the Druids Cash about copper coins and, and these tokens. And and so I found what was a, a trivia question from the coin world trivia game, novice level, and I didn't even know the answer. So I'm going to see if you know the answer. And it's, um, it's when you think about it, well, I mean, it, it's when you think about it, it'll, it'll come easy to you. But I, I just, I, I rushing through, I went, ooh, there's a copper related one. Let me see. I have no idea. Turn it over and, oh, duh, that makes sense. So the question it makes sense, he said. Sense, C E N T S. It makes sense. Okay, got yes. it. So uh, the question is copper is derived from which Mediterranean island that was an important source of the metal? Oh, okay. And you can use that for your one of your trivia night uh, games. If I sure, I sure can. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, there it is. Think about that while you're listening to our interview with Brian. I don't think he talks about that. So you'll have to do some exploration otherwise in other places. But we do ask you to listen, enjoy, and of course, learn. Here the interview is. The Coin World Podcast is so fortunate today to be joined by Brian Harriet, also known as Druid's Cash. Uh, we're going to explore the wonderful world of Condor tokens and explain what that means and what they are. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So, you know, Condor tokens are, I think, one of the most undervalued areas of numismatics today. And they're ripe with stories. They're wonderful designs. For somebody who's never heard of a Condor token, how would you describe it? What are they? Well, they are provincial tokens from England. Uh, and Well, the Great Britain, so the England, Scotland, Ireland, had their own tokens made. And they were made in the late 18th century. So we're talking a period of about 10 years from 1787 to 1797. And they sprung into existence because there was a severe lack of short change, small change, uh, rife with counterfeits of just really poor quality items. You know, they said if it was round or brown, it basically worked as currency back then. And the crown itself was reluctant to mint more copper because copper was considered a more of a base metal as where silver and gold were much more of the regal type of metal. 
So how they started was that when Thomas Williams at the Anglesey Copper Mines Company decided to make his own tokens to pay his employees and to, for them to use a short change, a small change. And so he created a penny token that had a druid on one side, which was sort of a nod to their own history, the Anglesey Island druids that the uh, Caesar and the Romans conquered just shortly after the time of uh, the birth of Christ. And on the other side is a, a cipher with the PMCO, the Paris Mining Company. And so these were full weight copper coins, and they quickly became very popular because they were so beautiful and so many people wanted to have them. And this sort of led into an avalanche of creativity and design and people just having to have these things. So it quickly started with um, the copper mines and, and tradesmen. Now, John Wilkinson, the iron master, was no, another one of Birmingham who had his own tokens made for his employees, and they were very finely made as well. And Matthew Bolton at the Soho Mint was one of the other influential historical figures to get involved in tokens. And these trade tokens so were meant to give people, give tradesmen a opportunity to supply change to their customers or to pay their employees and also to advertise their business. And it did all three of those things. And it became collected at the time. That's what's really important to understand when you see these things and you're like, how is it possible that a coin that was minted in the 1790s that was made of copper, which is much more sensitive to the elements than say silver or gold, how is it able to maintain this beautiful, lustrous quality? And some of them are bright, brilliant red, like they've just left the mint. And that's because they were collected at the time. There were people writing books about these things at the time and studying them and trading them back and forth from collector to collector. Even the collectors themselves would have tokens made of themselves to give to other collectors to trade for their tokens. So the whole collecting thing just took off and manufacturers took advantage of that as well. And they made as many tokens as they could because they could sell them. And they would mule dies together from one die to another and just create different combinations. And, you know, the tokens themselves also have what I call the third ed, the, the third side, which is edge writing. And they have many different varieties of edge writing on them too, which makes them even more interesting to study. So I know that's a long-winded answer as to what kind of tokens are, but hopefully that kind of puts it all out there. And yeah. I mean, you touched upon one area I think that's important to explain. People were researching those at the moment, and isn't that how we come to the name Condor? Yes. James Condor, he was a draper, and he was also a fervent collector of these tokens. And so he had his own token made, but he also wrote the first comprehensive collector's guide to these tokens and this whole series. And they don't really call them condor tokens anywhere else but in America. So if you go over to England and you're in a coin shop and you ask for condor tokens, they might look at you like you're crazy. But if you go over and ask for provincial tokens from the 18th century, because they also have tokens from the 17th century and the 19th century, there were brief periods of token manufacturing uh, at the time at those 
different times as well. But it's mostly here in America that we call them condor tokens and not condor like the bird, but condor, C-O-N-D-E-R. And that's James Condor was his name. You reference the flourish, so to speak, the flourishing business in this. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands of types, right? I mean, this is... Uh, such an enormous area to sort of dive into, and it's still growing. I mean, it's uh, we're we're discovering new varieties to this day. I mean, it's just a funny story that um, right after you asked me to do this, this collection that I bought in Florida, I've been cataloging them this week, and there was a token that's and it was from Lackington's Bookstore. and on the envelope it said there was an edge writing that wasn't in. The Dalton and Hamer guide, which is the most recent updated guide to condor tokens. And so I, I put it out on this Facebook group that is uh, full of experts that, uh, you know, I found this edge and that anyone ever seen this before. And sure enough, there's a new edge. So that becomes a whole new variety. And so there are well over 4,000 different varieties of these things that you can collect. You know, some of them are extremely rare, or maybe there's only one or two available or known in the world. And then there's others where there's thousands of them, of yeah. different, of varying quality. And and the uh, the druid probably is among that latter category. Um, and it's it's such an iconic design. Maybe it uh, makes sense that you chose that for the business name. Well, certainly. I, you know, I, I went back and forth from different uh, ideas, and I, I wanted to have it something with the druid. Um, I had this logo in mind, and and then I just was thinking of money and coins and. I thought cash, C-A-S-H, Druid's cash. Oh, that might be a little clever. So I, I went with that. But certainly the Druid, the image of the Druid for your average coin collector, they've probably seen that somewhere either online or in a, a chat group somewhere or at a coin show. And uh, so it's it's one of those tokens that I think any collector of world coins or world copper probably would have to have in their collection. It's a nice uncirculated druid penny a full weight copper so how did you get into this area i mean my understanding is you have a traditional background you know u.s coins but then you sort of got drawn into this um, somehow can you explain that i was a collector of barber dimes and world silver uh i liked failures and that type of thing and but i was a generalist i wouldn't really other than my barber dime collection i wouldn't really uh focus on anything and it was at a coin show in columbus a number of years ago and there was a dealer that had one token that or one coin that just looked different and it had a bottle on one side an old-fashioned bottle and some words around it and on the other side was a standing figure of i think it's justice this um a statuesque woman um and then there was some script about no taxation and it's just interesting i thought well it's got a political message it's an incredible design and oh, what's the date on that 1797 or something like that and I, I thought how much is this i, I i'm very interested in it. and he said it's 40 dollars forty dollars for a nice condition copper coin from the 1790s i'll take it so I went home and I did all the Google research that you do when you find something new and exciting. And I soon discovered, you know, the wide variety of these things and how cool they were and how inexpensive. And I found a dealer. And Bill McIver was the guy that I went through. And so for a number of years, I bought through him. He'd come out with a quarterly newsletter and price list. And I would uh, usually pick just one or two. I didn't have a lot of money to spend. So I'd spend just a couple hundred bucks. And 
and receive in the mail the next week, you know, some really high quality fun pieces and just started adding to my collection. But it, it snowballed into that where Bill eventually wanted to retire and he was in his eighties and he'd been doing it for 30 years. And uh, he kept putting the feelers out there if anyone wanted to buy his business and there were no takers for a long time. And then one day I just asked him in an email, how did you get started doing this bill? And he said, funny, you should ask. You've opened an interesting door. And then our conversation uh, evolved into um, him asking me if I'd be interested in taking over. And I said, well, I'm really not a numismatist, Bill. I'm an avid collector. I love these things. But he's like, that's all it takes. If you have the desire to do it and the passion for these things um, and the time and a little extra money, then uh, I think you can do it. He said, if a former paper boy could do it, which he was, then you can do it too. So I said, let's Let's do it. Let's just jump into it full steam because I was uh, a stay-at-home dad at the time, and I had a lot of free time. My girls are older now, and uh, I, I used to be a singer and an actor in New York and Chicago, and I thought, well, this this sounds like a fun thing to do for the next 20, 30 years of my life. And uh, so over the course of the next year, Bill, I bought his business from him, and he taught me a lot about grading and the series and you know the do's and don'ts of being a dealer and the ethics of it and and so that's how I got started and here you are and here I am I just attended my first major coin show and thought I did pretty well and had a blast and can't wait to do another one so when you had this opportunity to attend your first major coin show and your your brand new business and uh, some folks may have known Bill and known his business and some of the other dealers in this what uh, did you find as uh, it could, could you pigeonhole a typical customer who is interested in your product is as uh, an older collector or a young person starting out you know it's funny I, I I don't know the answer to that yet I've a as part of my purchase of Bill's business I did buy his customer list now many of those customers are retired are in the 60s 70s 80s and I've sort of come on as the new guy and I've uh, gotten to know some of them quite well. But at the show itself, I was surprised by how many young guys kept coming up to the table. And I, I sold a lot of tokens to four to five guys under 30. Now, I know that's sort of uh, bizarre to hear in the coin world. We're always complaining about bringing in, in young people, but it seems to be working. And uh, I, that's what I hope is the future and the trend is that younger people will find these interesting. And one thing I'll add about what I think is exciting about Condor tokens is as a collector, and I think young people associate, uh, will identify with this, is it brings back the feeling of when you collected things as a kid. You know, like I I used to collect baseball cards, um, records, um, stamps, coins, of course. And each one of them, like when I would go to the store and get a new pack of baseball cards, for example. Each one of them was different. Each one had its own story. And Condor tokens do that. They have, you know, you're not collecting one like old large cents that have just a different die variation, but it's basically the same coin. You're collecting many different coins and many different stories. And these things are personal. You can really 
with one token, get to know an awful lot about the people that were living in the 1790s, right after the American Revolution, during the French Revolution, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It was just an incredible time to be alive. And, and these tokens give you a window into that. The initial point that you made about your first purchase gives me the idea that this would be something for someone who is looking, who is younger and maybe not doesn't have as much expendable income, but these are an affordable option, but the variety itself is such the attraction that it's just like you can just find whatever you're looking for. You can find uncirculated pieces for $125, around $100 uncirculated. You can build a VF collection of most of these tokens for around uh, $35 to $50 a piece, depending on if there's color in it and there's not many defects of the tokens. But you can build a very respectable collection based on whatever budget you have. Now, I've got some pieces that are over $1,000 and quite rare and quite great condition. But it, whatever your, your level is, if you're a young kid out of college, you've got 50 bucks to spend at a coin show. I can sell you two tokens that will keep you entertained for a long time and uh, that you will really appreciate as part of your collection. I'm glad you're talking about this because it, it does bring to mind for me two points. Is somebody who's attracted to this area already buying the those copper cents and you know whatnot from that era whether that's british coins or u.s coins of the era and once we talk about that i want to know about ways to collect because you know it seems that as many different pieces as there are there's almost as many different ways to approach this and in building a collection so sure the to answer your first question i think the collectors of uh, like old American copper, colonial copper, they get into this because they'll invariably someone will appear like the early American copper show or something like that with condor tokens. And I know there's been several other dealers that have done that. And that will attract your more sophisticated client who's looking to buy like the top quality. At least that's been in my experience. Now, some Beginners have come to that as well, but mostly from the, the American copper uh, crowd, the customers that are mine, uh, that come from uh, from the early American copper club or large scent collectors, um, they seem to want to come right in and buy the best pieces they can. And your other question about ways to collect them, there are many different ways you can choose the, how you want to do it. You can just go with tradesmen's tokens. You don't want to. So, if you don't want to collect any of the mules or any of the private collector pieces or any of the political pieces or national pieces, then you don't don't have to do that. You can just get tradesmen's tokens. And there's a um, great book on how to get started doing that. Um, but I think John Lusk's book, uh, Tradesmen's Copper Tokens from 1787 to 1804. Um, you can also uh, go with animals if you like animals. You can start with uh, pidcock tokens you can uh, there's other tokens that have you know birds on them there have elephants of course they have there's one that's uh, bailey's token that has a rattlesnake on one side and a crocodile on the other and you can also go with uh, political satire uh, there's this thomas spence tokens who was a real muckraker who was one of the first socialists in the world who would put out his own tokens lampooning the crown and he was thrown into prison for treason and 
Some of his tokens are just fabulous and very popular. He would throw them out of his shop window to people and have them counter-stamped with propaganda that was uh, critical of the crown. Yeah. He did the hangman's token, right? Well, that's one of them, yeah. He did the, the hangman's, and then Skidmore bought his his dies and did other variations of the hangman. And uh, there's a uh, Thomas Paine. Talk about that issue. That's because that's that's one that has you know relevance to the American listener. Well, that would be one of the Thomas Spent, uh, the Spence tokens. Uh, there's one of the reverses called the Three Thomases, and it's got Thomas More, Thomas Paine, and uh, Thomas Spence. There were the three humanists, and this is a time when you know the rights of man were being written, and uh, Thomas Paine and and this was reflected in the tokens, and uh, th- that was a you know a time of political upheaval and political thought, and that's reflected in the tokens of Thomas Spence very strongly. So, do you sort of suggest find an area, find a topical thing, you know, just go after, you know, stick with animals or stick with political or whatever, you know, what's, uh, you know, whatever's available. I, well, I would say buy the book before you buy the coin. Okay. You referenced uh, Dalton and Hamer. That's the provincial token coinage of the 18th century by R. Dalton and S. H. Hamer. I am actually looking at a 1996 reprint edition. Um, yes. That's the I, one that I sell. And that's, that's the one that Bill McIver did. Okay. And that's $100 plus $10 shipping. I could get that to anyone. I've got a few copies left. Okay. So, I, I mean, I know that's that's sort of the book, and I, but I've seen other books, like you mentioned, you know, coming out of Britain pro- with that provincial token uh, classification. That's the one I would start with is the, the Dalton and Hamer that uh, I know Alan Davison did a, a copy um, before that that's really quite nice as well. But it, it's basically the same information that's been updated. Yeah. Because, you know, as I said before, we keep finding new ones of these things, and it's just getting very difficult to put them all in one place. Now, it is also available online for free. Um, I don't have the website in front of me where that is, but uh, it is available for free online. If you just research Dalton and Hamer Guide, you can get all the plates and and go from there. I like to have a paper book in front of me. I've never been one of these e-readers or it's just much more enjoyable for me to see the the plates and write notes in there and everything if I have to. I I totally understand. I I mean I'm I'm the same way. Um so what kind of support exists for people, you know, you say there's all these new things being discovered. There's a, a collectors club related to this. There's how do how do collectors stay connected to celebrate this topic and learn about this? Well, this is the new world, right? So it's not so much face-to-face anymore, although in England, they do have a token congress every year, and they have a club over there called the Token Corresponding Society, which I'm a member of. And and they put out uh, quite a bit of scholarly information uh, several times a year in their journal. But for us Americans, you know, we do have the Condor Token Collectors Club, which has been going on for around 30 years. And they put out a... a I think it's an, a biannual, like two a year now. It used to be four, but always looking for new members. And that's sort of the way that we all collect our information as Americans right now. Of course, as I said, in the new world, it's all on Facebook, on Reddit, or on other chat boards. Um, there's a Google Mail group that is uh, for the Condor Token Collectors Club. And, you know, I think Facebook is probably the most popular way to um, 
get involved. There is a group of um, enthusiasts and dealers and uh, professionals that uh, called the Condor Cafe that is run by Gary Grohl and Greg Silvis, I think, and Murph and Williams out of Wales. And um, it's a very good group of experts. If you have any questions or just want to sit back and learn, I would recommend joining that on Facebook. Does a group that is collecting provincial tokens in the UK differ from a collector in the United States? Are there any? Uh, are they similar, or are they different in their thoughts on what they're doing? Um, I think they're probably similar. I, I don't know a lot of them, unfortunately, since I just got started. I'm, I've communicated with them online, of course, and. But I would say the one major difference that comes to mind is how they grade. You know, the grading over there is different than our grading. They don't have the 70-point scale that we do. And they rarely use the term uncirculated, mostly to refer to like a perfect coin they will. But uh, most of their top graded coins are called extra fine. and Or we would be like, well, is that XF or what is that? It's <laughs> So their, their grading system is different, but not that hard to understand. It's actually, I think, a little easier. Um, and because it, it's so hard to grade on a 70-point scale when there's so many different tokens. And there's so many different uh, conditions that you look for in a Condor token in order to grade it. You know, you're looking at where, surface, color, what the defects are. Is there luster still and how much? How much red is in the coin? Similar to how you do large sense, but you have different, many different models of these copper coins that exist, whereas the the uh, you know the pennies and the half cents here in America are there's two or three designs or whatever it is. This is really an unfair question, and that's because of the variety that you offer on your website here. It's like asking you uh, to name one of your favorite children, but is your first token that you acquired is that your favorite token, or do you have one in your inventory that you would? hate to see you walk out the door because you love it so much. Yes. The, it, to answer your question, the first one, I like that token still, but no, it's not my favorite. It's it's a very simple design, somewhat crude, not particularly rare. Now, since I've delved into it, there's several more that I think are just outstanding, like uh, the uh, Warwickshire 122, I think it is. It's uh, Clark's Halfpenny. It's just a stunning design. It's a really work of art on both the obverse and the reverse. And um, it's really coin art at its finest. It's a rare piece as well. I own one of those. I'm debating whether or not to bring it to the A&A show to put it up for sale. But um, let's see what else. I, the Wild Man token, the Middlesex 906, uh, which advertises you know coming to see the the wild man of Gesso, the, or the head of him at least. And it's got on one side, it's uh, this wild looking head of a savage ape man. And that's very popular. And I've got one that's, um, I think, MS-65. It's just stunning. It's... Other than that, uh, I've got a couple that are uh, Thomas Spence tokens that I really love. Um, I've got some anti-slavery tokens that are, going to be hard to get rid of. Um, and, that, and that's one of the other tokens that, that comes from this series as the anti-slavery movement had uh, many tokens with a kneeling chained slave and written above that, am I not a man and a brother? And so very moving pieces. And you, know, you realize that some of these things that we're fighting about now, we were fighting about 300 years ago. 
that whole area, am I not a woman and a sister, the am I not a man and a brother, yeah. uh, I mean, it's just fascinating uh, stuff. And um, I guess the one of the best ways, if, if anyone is listening, uh, is going to be attending the World's Fair of Money, uh, the Condor Token Collectors Club is going to have a meeting on August 12 from 6 to 7 p.m. Um, so that's one way to stay in touch. Otherwise, I, I've while we're talking, I went out and found the Condor Cafe group on Facebook, and certainly you're active on Facebook and social media, Druid's Cash, different places. Yep, and I've got a Facebook page, too, for my business, and I... Um, I do YouTube videos as well for each price list. I do a, a monthly release that I call the monthly 20, and I do 20 uh, high-grade tokens With uh, you know, I send out. On, awesome. Um, uh, we'll have to look for that. I, I mean, one of the things I've loved seeing you do with the social media is contextualizing these, offering the stories behind it, because stories sell coins, stories sell the objects, because the objects really are a manifestation of a physical um, uh, you know, reference point for these moments in history. And um, that's why the, this area is so fascinating. Well, great. It means a lot that you say that because that's really one of the things I put a lot of thought into. And that's why I think they really sell themselves to any collector because they, they have so much more value than just what's extrinsically valued, uh, intrinsically valued to them as a coin. They know it's, they have that, but there's so much more that each piece offers that goes beyond just it being a token. And, now there are real people attached to these things who, you know, had lives and their trade, and and you could really feel like you're living in the time. And the more you research these tokens, fantastic. Uh, I I'm going to let that stand as the closing thought because there's there's nothing no better way to sum it up uh, unless Larry, you have anything. Well, I'd just like to make sure that we mention the website and the Facebook address where folks can find more information. Certainly, Brian, you've given us a sampling of what we need to have to understand to get involved in this. And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people who are interested in taking that next step. Uh, They're not going to be there to see you at the ANA or joining you in the UK for the conference. How can they get more information about Druid's Cash? Well, you can email me anytime you want. And my email address is on uh, my website, druidscash.com. And that's D-R-U-I-D-S-C-A-C-H-E.com. Uh, and uh, my contact information is in there. Um, but uh, Brian W. Harriet is uh, at gmail.com is my email address. So feel free to email me or check out my website uh, or through Facebook. I have uh, the Druids Cash page there and also my personal page. You can send me a message if you want to. Brian, we definitely appreciate your time and thank you for joining us today on the Coin World Podcast. Well, hey, I love talking about it and uh, I'm really honored that you guys uh, asked me to do this. It's been a lot of fun. And that was our interview with Brian Harriet, the Druids Cash, all about Condor tokens, these wonderful provincial tokens from uh, Great Britain and the constituents. Uh, hope you learned something as we, of course, did. Definitely. Man, it was so informative that, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to asking Brian some more questions when I see him over in Rosemont. And if you're going to be attending the World's Fair of Money, please stop by the Druid's Cash booth. Take a look at what he's got there. And uh, he mentioned the Pitcock's token with the elephant on it. And then, uh, the wife likes that one, but unfortunately he sold that. So hopefully uh, he's going to get one of those in there. But again, checking out 
what he has. Fortunately for you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when you're talking about the, the amount of money, some of these, again, like we pointed out, it's a great place to get a start here. And uh, they're very, very informative just by looking at them. They become artwork in a lot of ways. But uh, we're so glad Brian was able to be a part of today's podcast and also thank Amos Advantage for this opportunity once again to bring you this weekly presentation. We invite you to contact us through the information available. Uh, Also subscribe to the podcast through all the different channels that are available. So uh, it's bearing down on us that we're going to be heading off into the great state of Illinois here very soon, but a lot of work yet to be done to give you all the information we can through CoinWorld, coinworld.com and the various forms of information, our social channels as well. I think that's enough of the commercial for now. So let's go into uh, move on to the next phase. And that is until next time. Come see us at the coin show, but otherwise happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the coin world podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the CoinWorld podcast? If so, contact your CoinWorld sales representative or email Brian Hertel at b-h-e-r-t-e-l at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the CoinWorld podcast.